everyone and welcome to the show. This is episode number 26 of Pop Culturally Deprived and today we're going to be talking about Gross Point Blank on your I Killed the President of Paraguay with a Fork podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Today we are joined by a very special guest, New York Times bestselling author Kevin Hearn. Kevin is one of my all-time favorite authors and his claim to fame for me is the urban fantasy series The Iron Druid Chronicles. Though you may be more familiar with his Star Wars novel, which is actually still canon, you guys, Heir to the Jedi. So thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Can you tell us a little bit about why Gross Point Blank means so much to you? Because when I reached out to you on Twitter and said that, you know, and asked you what your favorite movie was, this is one of the very first ones that you you mentioned. Um, Yeah, this is one of those movies where... I guess it just kind of pressed all my buttons at the time that it came out. I was a few years out of college, and I was living in uh, Bakersfield, California at the time. And not particular. I enjoyed the work there, but the city itself was not what you would call a paradise. <laughs> I didn't want to raise a kid there. Uh, it, it has some of the worst pollution in the United States because of oil and, and, you know, regular smog and then agriculture. So you got all this pesticide as well, had like the second highest rate of asthma in the entire United States. So I was like, I was looking around and going, well, how did I get here? And, and, and gross point blank is kind of almost every character in it is asking themselves that same question. They're reevaluating their lives after, you know, 10 years out of high school and going, Whoa, this is, you know, not where I thought I would be. And, and it just kind of rang my bell a little bit, and I loved it and, and related to it and wound up watching it five times in the theater. <laughs> Kept going back. Yeah. That's amazing. I was surprised whenever we announced that we were going to be doing this movie at how many people on Twitter got really excited because they all mm. love this movie too. And the consistent question I always get when we do this show is, how have you never seen that? Because nobody can understand how somebody can be that sheltered. Yeah. And, and with this one, honestly, I had never even heard of this movie until we were putting together the list for the podcast. I had no idea this movie even existed. And I think that's just insane considering how many people seem to love it so much. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a cult hit, I guess, uh, out here. I don't know how well it did at the box office or anything like that, but I, I helped a little bit I kept, you know, because I kept going back. Well, we always try to give a little bit of history and production information for the movie that we're talking about because there are, shockingly enough, people out there like me who haven't seen some of these movies. So Gross Point Blank is an American comedy thriller that was released on April 11th, 1997. The initial script was written by Tom Jinkovitz, though there were so many revisions, not to mention improvisations, that D.V. DeVincentis, Steve Pink, and John Cusack also all got credit for the screenplay. Directed by George Armitage, the film was largely improvised. He said, With Gross Point Blank, I shot three movies simultaneously. We shot the script as written, we shot a mildly understated version, and we shot a completely over-the-top version, which usually was what was used. We cast that movie, and I've cast most movies, by having the actors come in and read, then throwing the script out and saying, okay, let's improvise. Overall, the movie received a positive critical response. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a rating of 80%, Metacritic has it at 76%, and Roger Ebert gave it 2.4 out of 4 stars. He praised the chemistry between the lead actors and enjoyed the dialogue, but considered it a near-miss, wishing for a wittier, more clever ending. 
And I think I read, uh, I didn't put the box office numbers in here because they really just weren't that impressive. And I think I read that it came in at like number six for the weekend that it was released. Mm. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't horrible, but it definitely wasn't a smash. No, in total, I think it just about doubled its budget. So not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the movie, Gross Point Blank is about an assassin whose plans go awry when he decides to go home for his 10-year high school reunion and reconnect with his high school sweetheart. Sounds pretty innocuous, right? Just that assassin bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, an unusual thing to uh, bring back to the high school reunion and to say, you know, say what you, you know, that you assassinate people. Most yeah. people, you know, sell insurance. <laughs> Yeah, I'm honestly still shocked by the idea of John Cusack playing an assassin. That, that's kind of where I was when I saw what this movie was about. I was like, I feel like I have to watch that just to kind of see how they do that. It was very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. He's not uh, your typical uh, cold-blooded, you know, sort of psychopathic, zero-empathy kind of person, you know? Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, we do like to share with everybody listening how we watched the film this time so that if you want to watch with us, you can. And unfortunately, in the United States, it is not uh, available on any of the subscription streaming services. So what I did was uh, I signed up for the free seven-day trial of Showtime through Amazon just so I could watch this. And I need to remember to go cancel that. In the UK, it's on Sky Cinema, so I was able to watch it when I wanted to. Oh, well, aren't you special? Yeah. <laughs> I, I bought it on iTunes a long time ago, and I've had it, you know, as part of my little library of movies, so I see it whenever I like. And you watched it five times in the theater when it came out. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> that is dedication. Did you watch it in the build-up to recording the podcast? Have you watched it more than once recently? No, well, recently, just just the once recently. So, uh, but but I have watched it probably within the last six months as well, because it makes me laugh. My wife and I actually trade a bunch of lines, uh, you know, in our everyday interaction sometimes. Nice. So, uh, yeah, we we find it endlessly entertaining. Awesome. So, Mandy, other than not believing about John Cusack as an assassin, what did you have any expectations going into this? No, I mean, like I said, I'd never heard of it. So for me, I was just expecting it to kind of be one of those fun John Cusack comedies that he was so prolific at doing. And so have you seen him in other stuff? Okay, so you guys all know that I've not seen very much of like 80s, early 90s, like rom-com teen things, which is what he did a lot of. So I did not actually discover John Cusack until 2003 when he did the thriller Identity. And I absolutely fell in love with him in that movie. And then he did that you know, end of the world movie 2012, which is also really stupid, but really good. And then he did have kind of like this adult rom-com period where he did some really, really bad rom-coms, but I love them anyway, because one, they're rom-coms and two, he was in them. So things like America's Sweetheart, Serendipity, Must Love Dogs. I love Must Love Dogs. Do you really? I do. That's, that's like one of our favorites. Yeah. <laughs> See, and I think that's the worst one on the list. You do? You know, I'm a dog lover, so, you know, it's, it's kind of worked for me. I am, too, and I was so disappointed in that one because I love Diane Lane, and I love John Cusack, and I love dogs. And so that movie should have been made specifically to delight me, and it I was just sad. But, yeah, John, yeah I still love John Cusack, though, at least in what I've seen. I, I understand yeah. my experience of him is 
is much smaller. And we've definitely got a few more of his on the list to get through. I think 16 Candles is on there. But we've also got High Fidelity. Uh, I suspect we might have Thin Red Line might also be on there as well. Uh, no, that one's not. But I know Say Anything is and Better Off Dead is. <laughs> Better Off yeah. Dead is where I first became aware of him. And I loved him in that. that, that that's a movie that, you know... Well, it cracked me up as a younger person. Then I watch it now, and I'm like, wow, I was in a really weird place. <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> it doesn't. It hasn't aged quite as well, but I, but I still think uh, it's funny, especially the newspaper kid in there uh, wanting his $2. I have no idea what the movie's about, so one day we'll do a show about it, and I'll finally get to see it. <laughs> yeah. I'd be interested to see your uh, reaction to that one. Well, maybe we'll invite you back and have you be on that show with us, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, as far as Minnie Driver and Dan Aykroyd go, I know less about them. For me, Dan Aykroyd's claim to fame is my girl <laughs> because he was the dad. Um, but, of course, I, I have now seen Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, but, honestly, it's those two are the, really the only thing that I can think of off the top of my head that I've seen that have Dan Aykroyd in them. And then Minnie Driver... Goodwill Hunting. I know her from that. And then she did some like beauty pageant singing movie that I can't remember what it's called that I f- remember liking, but I have no idea what it was. High Heels and Low Lifes? I couldn't tell you. No, okay. Honestly. A side note on Minnie Driver. Good to see a Brit with a good American accent. She's oh, British? I didn't know. Yeah, born and raised in London. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, then that was an outstanding American accent because mm. I had no idea. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, you, you don't often get that with uh, Brits of Gosses Americans. So. <laughs> this is described as a black comedy, and I think we've definitely done one with Heathers. Does anything else come to mind that you've seen that put you in mind of this? No. I, I remember struggling to answer this question when we did the Heathers episode, because black comedies are just not something that I'm generally aware of, I think. And so Heathers is the only one that I can think of that would fall into the same vein, I think. Okay. But they're very different movies. Yeah, I think this is a little bit lighter than Heather's is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit more blood in this one than there was in Heather's, but it was overall the tone was better, I think. Definitely not as dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so having now finally heard of and seen Gross Point Blank, what did you think of it? I am so glad I really liked this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was so afraid that we were going to get on the show and my favorite author is going to be on here talking about his favorite movie, and I was going to hate it. And I was so freaked out that that was going to happen, because we have not had a good run of movies lately that I've liked. And I am so happy to say I did really enjoy this, and I would happily watch it again. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it, and you should. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it rewards multiple viewings, I think. My own 10-year reunion was kind of looming when this came out. I think uh, I would have been a sophomore when Martin Blank was a senior. So I related to these, uh, you know, just the multiple 80s references throughout the whole thing. And then just I related to Martin's uh, bewilderment about uh, what his life had become and and everybody else as well. Um, so uh, at one point, Debbie, the you know, the character played by Minnie Driver, you know, she says to this, other character says, yeah, well, you're our demo, you know, our demographic, uh, because now she's in radio and she's playing all these 80s retro stuff at the radio station. It worked for me. That's awesome. I um, I don't really get the 80s stuff and the 80s, like, throwback stuff, just because I 
you know, I, I'm a product of the 90s. I mean, I was born in the 80s, obviously, but I was too young to appreciate it. So it's always it's always nice to find people who just get really excited about that 80s throwback stuff, even as as early as I mean, this was only 1997. And already it was it was a thing. Yeah, the the 80s really did take on their own sort of, I guess, character. People talk about the 80s a lot more than they talk about the 90s as being memorable. So I don't know why that is for sure. But there seem to be a lot of shows about the 80s uh, music and culture. And uh, and I don't see as many about the 90s, although maybe I'm just not tuning in as much. I don't know. No, I think you're right. I think that the 80s has a more self-contained identity than the 90s did. The 90s just kind of kept bleeding into the early 2000s. Um, I mean, if you ask me to, there are some very specific 90s things that I could reference, like, you know, the Spice Girls or, or things like that. But everything kind of that might be 90s related kind of bleeds into the decade after. And so it's not quite as isolated as the 80s was. And I don't know why the 80s got to be what it was. I mean, I guess you guys were just more awesome than we were. <laughs> I don't know. You, you you could look at some of the hair back then and say, yes, that was awesome, or yeah. that was a bad idea. <laughs> um, but definitely did have its own identity. I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure why. I mean, because like, if you, if you look back previously to that, you know, the 60s have their own identity, the 70s have their own identity. And I kind of feel like that ended in the 80s that we haven't continued with that trend unless it, like you said, maybe I've, I've gotten to the point where I just tune it out and I don't, I don't notice it. But I, I feel like that just doesn't happen the way it used to. I wonder if the internet has done that because it, it sort of homogenized a lot of stuff. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And everything, everything's so much faster now, it's not even that it's a decade that has a thing, it's this year to this year. Well, yeah, I mean, fads come and go in the space of a week sometimes. Mm. <laughs> that is true. So on Gross Point Blank, we mentioned John Cusack as a, an assassin being a surprising casting, but I think given the, the nature of the character, he's pretty much the perfect person to have been doing this. Yes. I I think this this movie was perfectly cast. I mean, everything about it was amazing. And when I started watching it, like, I was baffled at how this was going to work. I mean, Dan Aykroyd <laughs> is an assassin. John Cusack is an assassin. You know, we, we've got K. Todd Freeman being one of the feds. Who, well, I wasn't really sure he was a fed at first, but I finally figured that out, you know. And just the way they all interacted with each other, with each other was perfect. And in, in fact, um, in my, my thoughts doc, where I kind of live tweet without spoiling actually on Twitter... I said a couple of times there were scenes and they played out exactly the way I would expect John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd to interact with each other in this mm. space. And once I found out, you know, when I was looking at the, the production information, how much this film was improvised, it made so much more sense because it really felt like rather than reading off of a script, these two characters really got into the headspace and they just interacted with each other. And it was amazing. It does feel that it does have that energy, that improvisational sort of energy, and and you you don't think of it if you if you go back and look at it and see well wow was that scripted how did they script that you know you, you kind of realize yeah they probably didn't <laughs> so yeah uh, there's there's a lot of very genuine reactions as it goes through and then even the the bit in the the meeting in the cafe John Cusack's walking out going ooh ooh ooh. It's so weird, but it works. They're just—they're not quite sure how to posture and get out of this situation. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. There, there's so much about it that I that I really enjoy. Uh, you can see that he was probably well. The, there's a scene where he meets his old high school buddy Paul, and they're in the car, and uh, you know Paul is it's Jeremy Piven, right? And mm. and he's uh, <laughs> asking him where he's been and all that. And that whole scene, you can kind of tell that that had to be impro- improvised, you know, uh, because the interaction there is impossible to script. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I didn't put this in the section when we talk about our favorite lines, but one of my favorite lines is actually in the, that car ride um, because Paul takes him to Debbie's house and, uh, and, and Paul says, yeah, it kind of crept up on you, didn't it? And Martin goes, no, you drove us here. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know how they kept a straight face doing that because that was amazing. And it was just so snarky and sarcastic, but still so on the nose. Yeah. They had, you know, and, and other other lines, you know, Debbie with Minnie Driver, when she's, after Martin left and she's talking on the radio kind of about what she's feeling and she goes, what is this I'm feeling? Is this hunger? Am I hungry? And she's really talking about, you know, being heartbroken. <laughs> and then she starts talking about being hungry. And I just, it's so off the wall, but it's so spot on, you know, when you are going through those levels of emotions. I mean, this is the guy who broke your heart and he was your high school sweetheart. He left you on prom night. You haven't heard from him in 10 years and he shows back up. And obviously there's still chemistry because these two have amazing chemistry on the screen. And then all of a sudden, Mm. is this hunger? It just, it cracked me up. It was fantastic. One of my favorites is um, Alan Arkin as, you know, John Cusack's therapist dr oatman and mm. you know martin's going in there for therapy he's he's starting to feel you know really bad about uh well his job or something he he feels uh ennui perhaps and what i love about this is that this therapist clearly probably needs some therapy of his own uh he's really not with it and and he's also wondering like martin you know how did i get here and why am i so unhappy um, you know, but here he is now trying to counsel uh, an assassin, and and, I, and I, he doesn't want to do it, but Martin insists on coming, and so he when he finally tries to help, it, I just think it's hilarious. You know, he says, "Well, Martin, I don't want to suggest anything that might be uncomfortable for you, but you might consider just consider the possibility that part of the problem, part of the thing that's making you so miserable, is the angst over killing a lot of people. Just put it in the background, and and that kind of." <laughs> Put it in the background, you know, and and I, I I loved how understated that was, and you know, and then Martin's like, well, I don't care about morality, and and then he's, you know, he's even more, you know, Doctor Oatman is even more depressed after that. So, um, I, I loved his all of his scenes. Basically, I thought they were perfect. Yeah, Alan Arkin was great in that role, and I I think it's so clever to have a character like Martin, who is, I mean, he's a professional killer. This is what he does. But he's self-aware enough to know that he needs therapy. (laughs) And so he's forcing this therapist to give him therapy, you know, by threatening him, essentially. You know, well, I know where you live. And I think (laughs) it's just... It's, it's brilliant from, you know, from a plot perspective, from a story perspective of, of kind of getting us into Martin's brain, but also offers us some amazing humor. Yeah, yeah. And, and I like, you know, he argues, you know, with, with uh, Dr. Oatman about an emotional involvement. And Dr. Oatman says, I'm emotionally involved because I'm afraid of you. So we can't yeah. continue. Hmm. 
And uh, and then Martin just comes back with this argument about how really it's uh, all on him and it's not anything that Martin's done. Yeah, their whole interaction is fantastic. And he's used so sparingly throughout the film. And I'm not even... Oh, they have that one conversation over the phone after that. But even the moments where they're not speaking and you see the reaction from Oakman and you see he doesn't want to go through it or he's smashing up this answering machine because he's desperately trying to stop him recording. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's that's actually one of the, the great things about a character like that. He leaves you wanting more, which means you know you've done it right. You've created a, a really compelling character there uh, mm. with just a, a few minutes on screen. So Yeah. I think a, another... A very, very small detail in this movie that stood out to me, and I loved it, was the fact that Martin did not like sitting with his back to the door. And and they never mm. really, I think it, later they he finally actually said that, but that first scene where he goes into the radio station and is talking to Debbie, and he's just, he's fidgety and he's constantly looking behind himself, and you kind of feel like he's just awkward because he's talking to her after so long and you kind of feel like this is just him being weird and then as soon as she gets up he immediately moves to the seat that she was in and he's <laughs> fine and you understand immediately this is another piece of who Martin is of understanding that he's an assassin so he needs to always be aware of what's going on and if he can't see what's behind him he's he doesn't like that because somebody could sneak up on him. And that's just a very small, like, I, I wonder if that was improvised or if that was in the script because it's, it's such a small detail, but it's a, a powerful one about who he is as a character. Well, I, I think that they must have scripted that to some extent because we, we find out later that, of course, he is being hunted. He's not just paranoid. He, there really are people after him. And, uh, you know, because of that screw up in Oregon with the dog. Boudreaux. Yeah. So so it makes sense that he's paranoid because, you know, he, he actually does have a price on his head. Yeah. 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 But but it was, yes, very, very good the way they did it. They, they were showing you his paranoia rather than telling you. Mm, definitely. And it's, it's such a great character point that you can believe it and it, it helps flesh out that he's a professional killer. Where without that, you'd only be getting it from the moments of violence. But this is, you can see, it's seeped into his core, the way to act and the way to move around the world. Yeah, the way he dresses, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that everyone comments on. And the guy who comes up behind him at the party puts his hand on his shoulder and gets taken down straight away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the guy, and then you find out that the guy he took down used to be a professional wrestler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he still took him down super fast. Oh, Great. What do you guys think about the idea that when he comes home, I mean, he's been gone for, for 10 years. And so obviously everybody wants to know where he's been and what he's doing. And without fail, almost every time he actually says professional killer. <laughs> I, I love it. He, he, uh, he goes ahead and says it because he pretty much knows nobody's going to believe him and that they're, you know, they're going to think he's joking. And, uh, I so I I love the the different reactions to it mm. that they all immediately assume one way or another he's being a smartass, uh, but <laughs> he's being honest with them. And, and you know what's weird about that is almost everybody else is probably lying about you know in some way presenting who they are, but he's being very honest compared to almost everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really like the way, like you say, he does it every single time, and there's always a slightly different reaction. And I'm, I'm now wondering, is that because 
of experience that he knows no one ever believes him? Or is this part of why he's in therapy? That there's no legitimacy to what he does. No one believes him. He can't talk to anyone about it, except for other professional killers who appear to be awful people. <laughs> and he just <laughs> yeah. wants someone to actually have a conversation with him about what it's like. <laughs> yeah, that probably is it. I, I, I didn't think about that before, that his entire existence, pro- you know... It, it probably revolves around people asking him, you know, what do you do? And he always has to come up with something. Mm. And uh, it's probably a barrier to forming any sort of meaningful relationship because of course he really is a professional killer. That is certainly a barrier, but, but then he, he can't even, you know, really lie convincingly about it. (laughs) Couch salesman. (laughs) Yeah. I sell couch insurance. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder though it's it's such a unique idea I think to have him one he uses his real name two he has an office and a secretary you know he is running this as a legitimate business a giant filing cabinets do they have like files on everyone they've killed <laughs> I mean, dude has a fax machine in his car in 1997, you know? I mean, so this this is like a legitimate business for him. So, you know, and, and I feel like it's it's that way for other assassins in the area. I mean, they're trying to start a freaking murder club here. You know, they're like unionizing, you know, being a mercenary. And, and it just, that kind of baffles me a little bit because that's not usually the take that we get. You know, when you think of, other assassin movies like like Jason Bourne, you know, it's all very hush-hush, you know, off the grid, nobody actually knows your real name or who you are, and and it's just interesting to me that not only does he kind of have a legitimate lifestyle, even though it is kind of in secret, he walks around and tells people what he does. I, I don't really know what I think about that or, or if I, or, or what it may mean, but it just, it struck me as interesting and different yeah i I, they didn't go into the details but what i kind of assumed about that that business front was that he had this uh, what do they call it trident global or international or something like that um yeah whatever their company is supposed to do that is all just to launder the money that he's bringing in as an assassin so he's got a legitimate front to basically launder all of his you know killing money Okay, you know, I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, but that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you'd have to do something, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you just have you know bricks of cash taped under your desk. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, and, and what's you know, out here in Colorado, uh, what what's happening is uh, because of uh, marijuana being a, a cash business, because you can't put any of the proceeds into banks. Uh, because they're federally insured, right? And so in federally, marijuana is still illegal. So what that does is it means that all of these guys bringing in all these cash uh, or all this cash from marijuana have to figure out some way to launder it so that they can get it into banks. So what they're doing is buying real estate, and the real estate market is ridiculous here. They're just going with you know, briefcases of cash, buying houses, flipping them, getting the cash out, and now it's been laundered and cleaned, and they can put it in the bank. Huh. So, so I mean that that's how – uh, you, you know, you got to have when you have some sort of illegal source of money, you always have to have, a, you know, a laundering operation. And I'm right. sure that's what he's doing. Thank you for teaching us how to crime. Yeah, I I don't know a ton, you know, but but I'm <laughs> learning a little here as I go, you know. 
<laughs> do some research for books, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Research. That's it's what all, it is. It's all research, I promise, NSA. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Matthew, you had a couple of, of points in the doc that you wanted to talk about. I'm quite interested as as the film goes through. Um, there's a couple of moments where Debbie says to him about having a, a spiritual moment. Shakabuku, um, I think. A swift spiritual mm-hmm. kick to the head uh, that alters your reality forever. And he talks uh, towards the end about uh, seeing the ocean on fire in the Gulf and how it was beautiful. And he thought there was more going on to life. But there's this moment in the middle where he's given uh, a baby. Not given a baby. He's asked to hold a baby for a short time. Um, <laughs> hey, it's us. Awesome. Have a baby. You like a baby. <laughs> um, but he's asked to hold this baby. And the, and just the film goes quite intense at that moment at, at this incredibly cute young baby looking at him and kind of smiling and him looking back with his shocked expression on his face. It, it almost feels like that is the shakabuku. That is the thing that makes him go... Oh, holy crap, I could actually be having a genuine life and children and love and stuff. Am I reading too much into it? Do you guys see that? Is there something else there that uh, feeds into any of that? I think they were intending us to get that impression. Just because of the way they shot it, they kept going back and forth between the baby's face and his face, and, and he kept getting this like more and more look of epiphany on his face yeah. as, as they were doing that. And then it's it's not too long after that that he decides he wants to marry Debbie, you know, Mm. and he realizes that he doesn't want her to be scared of him or or to hate what he does and and all of that stuff. And, and I think that's when he also, something changes in him and he talks about how he was only killing the people who were going to kill him first, you know, and he reassures Debbie that the only reason that he killed was because that guy was going to kill him first. And so I think that there is some sort of internal mental shift at that point. Yeah, I would agree that that's supposed to be the emotional tipping point for him, for sure. They were playing Queens under pressure with David Bowie, you know, and Mm. that whole scene first with the mom of the baby, you know, she's an old friend of his from high school and she's talking about how marriage has really been awesome for her and it's not, you know, the end or anything like that just keeps getting better and better. And so she is a a huge contrast with Martin right there. They went to the same high school and they had completely different outcomes. He cracked under the pressure of high school and, you know, what is he going to do when he graduates? And he became an assassin. You know, it, it, the pressure of society turned him violent, but she, on the other hand, wound up, you know, falling in love, getting married and, and having a kid. And she's incredibly happy and fulfilled. And so he's looking, you know, at this baby and realizing, wow, I really could have had a very different life if I had just kept it together. Mm. And now he wants to fix things. And I think the whole movie is about not just him, but everybody trying to fix what went wrong with their lives, you know, whatever it is that you, you see this multiple times with multiple characters wondering, how did I get here? And how did I, you know, how can I fix it now? Can I, is there a way out if I'm feeling trapped? Right. So that's another thing that I really love about it is that, uh, it, it really makes, uh, makes you think about your life and then how you might want to fix it as well, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, it's such a great way to come at it. Yeah. I hadn't really put it in together with him comparing himself to her. Um, entirely but yeah the the normal thing for a story like this would be the midlife crisis of do I 
get married when you're engaged or do I stay in this marriage? Do I flounder? Something like that. He's having a uh, crisis. Do I continue being an assassin or do I go and settle down and so on? So it's yeah, a much nicer way to come at it and tell that story. Yeah, a different absolutely. Way at least. I, and, I, and I was wanting to bring up Bobby Beamer. Mm. Yeah, it, it, Bobby Beamer is this uh, Bobby Steffalo, I guess, is his actual name. But but you know his nickname is Bobby Beamer now because he owns a BMW uh, dealership. So he looks like he's been this privileged jock, you know, during high school, and mm. now he's still a privileged businessman. So he's been privileged his entire life, but the way they present this character, you never feel the least bit envious of him because he's pretty pathetic. You know, he's, he's this emotionally stunted man. He's habitually using drugs and alcohol to distract himself from his own misery. And he, when he's trying to confront Martin and Martin just doesn't, doesn't take the bait, you know? He doesn't want to fight, doesn't want to hit him, doesn't want to – certainly doesn't want to kill him or anything like that. You know, Bobby Beamer is already utterly alone. He hates his life. It's all self-inflicted. Nothing that Martin does can hurt him any worse than he's already hurting. Mm. And I I thought that, you know, that was just – he's a very minor character, but he represents probably somebody we all know from our own high school experience. And it's it's kind of you know looking at Bobby Beamer like way it's almost Schadenfreude you know yeah looking at looking at how he turned out he he winds up reading a poem you know these are my words you know <laughs> and he's like that's the problem Bobby express yourself you know uh, that he tells him that and um, maybe Bobby after that we don't know what happens to him afterward does he improve or not you know uh, he was so drunk and stoned at the time that he probably is going to wake up in the morning and not even remember the whole thing. So we'll have to project a little bit and wonder if Bobby Beamer is going to get his life back on track or not. I, I love that they put that in there, that it wasn't all just, you know, the unusual kids. They're looking at, you know, what what happened to the popular kids, too. And the popular kids are not the focus. They're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're sideshows uh, in the background of the movie. Yeah, it's it's really terrific how it is very much going back to high school and meeting all the different characters you could meet and seeing how things could turn out. And he's had this crazy life, but perhaps now that's what he needs to get into. Yeah, I kind of wanted to compare it to another 90s high school reunion movie, uh, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Mm-hmm. But I felt like that was just a little bit <laughs> too, I don't know, too insulting or too different or, or whatever. But I, I did keep seeing the parallels between the two because you are seeing how different everybody's life turned out. But I think part of that is just the nature of reunion movies. Yeah, probably so. I, 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 I don't remember that one very well. I know I saw it, but I can't remember the details. It's okay. You probably don't want to remember the details. <laughs> I, I remember it for the post-it note scene. <laughs> just yeah. up with the chemical composition of a post-it note glue. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. The rest of it, yeah, utterly forgettable. But that's, yeah, that's, it goes through some of the same stuff, but doing it about their friendship rather than about one person's journey. Right. Mm. Okay. I have another question kind of uh, just about the movie itself and, and what they were showing us versus what they were telling us. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's a piece that I didn't really quite understand what they were trying to do. So in the beginning, when Marcella is, keeps telling him 
you know, she's reading him his high school reunion invitation and he is having none of it. He is not interested. He wants her to burn it, you know, stop reading this to me. I'm not going, blah, blah, blah. He's just very emphatic about it. And then this job comes up that he has to go to and, oh, guess what? It's near home. And all of a sudden he's like, well, no, I still don't want to go. And he's still pretty emphatic, but something happens and he he flips and then all of a sudden he's really excited to go home and be there and I couldn't really understand what triggered that change unless it was literally just he got there and realized oh I'm actually gonna see Debbie but I didn't feel like that was clear did I miss something big that they were trying to tell us I well I think he was it was all about Debbie I think that the rest of his high school experience he didn't want to relive because that's what made him snap in the first place but, you know, so he didn't want to, you know, go back to what had unbalanced him before. But he did truly love Debbie, and he was talking about Dr. Oatman with it, right? He says, oh, I had another dream about Debbie. You mean that girl you're obsessed with? You know? And he says, well, hmm. they go into a conversation about the definition of obsession at that point. But, um, I, I, yeah, I think that, that it was basically when it came down to, well, I could maybe see Debbie, then he's like, all right, that – that will be a reason to go. Plus I have a job. So I think maybe that, that was the reason why. Okay. Yeah. I, I put it down to that conversation with Dr. Oakman. He says, I'll go down there. I'll kill some time. No, don't kill anyone. <laughs> 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 okay. But yeah, that's the thing that convinced him to go down. And then, and then it obviously incites Dan Aykroyd to, uh, to dump him into the feds. <laughs> yeah. Mandy, I know as you watched it, you picked up on uh, a couple of Buffy actors in this, which will always I please did. you. Yes, I got I get super excited. Kevin, you're a first time guest on our show, so Buffy's kind of my thing, and I try to somehow reference Buffy in every episode <laughs> of this show, which can result in some acrobatics trying to get there. But this one, they just dropped it in my lap. I mean, there's so many actors in this that showed up on Buffy. Um, K. Todd Friedman was one of the two feds. You know, he was in season three of Buffy. Carlos Jacot was in Buffy, Angel, and Firefly. And um, and then I, I forgot until you were just talking about Bobby, but Michael Cudlitz played Bobby Beamer, and he was actually on Buffy, too. And so that just made me really happy. I mean, this, this thing has no ties to Joss, so I don't know why all these people ended up together, but it makes me really happy that they did. Can I give you one more Buffyverse crossover that is, is the sort of thing only so, as someone as nerdy as I will pick up sometimes? You know, he goes to visit his mum in the old person's home? Yes. Do you remember the Angel Season 3 episode where the old man takes over Angel's body? Yes. It's the same old person's home. Really? It is. I don't know if it's a set or an actual old person's home or something, <laughs> but it is the exact same room. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I have a screen grab um, that I did for a uh, friend of the show, Lani Dynamich, when she covered it on her podcast. So <laughs> I will, I will that... be posting this on Twitter, I think. Okay, that is amazing. I I love it when my fandoms collide and when everything kind of... I mean, it's, it's a small world, obviously, but it just it makes my heart happy whenever I can bring everything back to Buffy. That must be some place out in L.A. then, you know, where they were shooting that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> you never expect to recognize the interior of a place because they just make the set and then they tear it down again. But this was... it's it, Yeah, the fireplace is the same. The, I think it's painted the same. 
I have to be honest, I was not paying attention to the set at that point because I was so angry at Martin. I guess this is where I can bring up, I have a thing with characters who I consider to be really terrible human beings. And I kind of feel like Martin is a really terrible human being. Oh, but he has scruples. He Well, he does, but okay, he didn't know that his house had been torn down and that his mom was in an old person's home like he didn't he didn't know like how how do you not know what's going on with your parents unless you're a really terrible human being i mean at least he did at some point he did turn around and say that he sends money but that doesn't really make sense either because if he had been sending money to the house well once the house got torn down it would have been sent back and and he should have figured it out um so i (laughs) I don't really know what I'm trying to say here other than I was really, really upset that he didn't know kind of what was going on, that, that his mom was this sick and that she couldn't live by herself anymore and all, and all this other stuff. And, you know, that bothered me. So I didn't pay attention to that. Yeah, I got you. It, that was um, obviously, it, it, I guess his father must have been an alcoholic and because he poured out that bottle of whiskey on the grave. Right. Uh, so probably not, you know, a happy home life. And, and maybe that, you know, he had just been alienated and he figured that um, sending money would, you know, I guess that would take care of his his duty as a son to make sure his mom was supported financially. But, yeah, it, it seemed like uh, the sort of thing that he would have asked Marcella to do, you know, just send them money and then he doesn't really get involved. Mm-hmm. And right. Kind of. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying there. He's. He, he's obviously not had a close relationship, and only when he gets back home does he realize, I'm a little bit out of the loop here. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, well, I will say we are compiling a list of really terrible human beings that I actually like. <laughs> <laughs> they are few and far between, yeah, and I think <laughs> – I know. I think we're up to like four now. Um, but I think Martin can, can be added to that list because I do, I do like him. He makes me laugh. And uh, he makes me a little bit crazy too, but John, I mean, it's John Cusack. How, how can I hate him? He's very charming. Yeah. He's very charming. <laughs> but he's also trying to get better. He realizes he's got issues and he needs to mm. improve. And he's not sitting there, go- he's not going to wallow. Um, and he's not going to just say, oh, well, um, I'm bad, so I guess I'll embrace it. You know, and instead, he's actually trying to improve himself. Yeah. Mm. And and as it goes on, he realizes just how bad everything is. As as his constant thing of it's not me, when he's killing people or or people thinking that he he just wants people dead, comes to the point where Debbie confronts him and he says, "Psychopaths kill for no reason. I kill for money. It's a job. That didn't come out right." <laughs> and it's just and he goes, you can see him realize actually this is a little terrible that I've completely justified my life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I was wanting to talk about um, how the they're pretty clever with uh, the soundtrack choices and mm. how they uh, choose songs that, if you think about them, have some sort of relevance to uh, the scene or the characters in that scene. Um, and one of my favorites was uh, when he when he kills the assassin who's after him mm. at, at at the reunion, and then <laughs> he and uh, Paul. Spiricky roll up the body in like some pep signs and then they, <laughs> they they take it downstairs to stuff it in the furnace and while they're doing that they're doing it to 99 Luft Balloons by Nina 
And I, I love it because uh, for, for several reasons, you know, one of it is uh, I actually have a line in my first book from the widow McDonough about friends helping you <laughs> with murder. A friend will help you move, but a really good friend will help you move a body. And, <laughs> and, and that's what that scene is, you know, is, is this really good friend from 10 years ago uh, helping him move a body and, and getting rid of it. But the song, 99 Luft Balloons, is all about a war starting over a misunderstanding about 99 balloons released into the air near a border. And then because the radar picks them up and doesn't know what they are, they scramble Air Force uh, to go out there. And then when the Air Force gets there, they say, oh, well, here's, here's a bunch of balloons, so let's just shoot them down for fun. Well, then when they do that, that violence or that shooting down of balloons near the border kind of causes the international incident. And now we've got okay. a war starting, uh, you know, just basically a war starting that lasts for 99 years and all of this just death and destruction basically over a misunderstanding. And Martin, the, this whole situation with Martin, like the reason this guy came after him was a misunderstanding or over an accidental killing of a dog in Oregon. And so now he's got a price on his head because he accidentally killed the dog. And he's got to basically be on the run for his entire life because of that accident and not for an actual, you know, assassination that he did. Um, so I, I thought that, that that was an interesting choice for the the song title. Of, of course, it's a, a really peppy song and it just kind of worked for the scene, you know, as, you know, a soundtrack thing. But the meaning behind it also related to the content of the movie. So I... I and then the under pressure song uh, during that uh, climactic moment, emotional moment for him was also, you know, relevant to, you know, his, his particular character. So I, I like what they did there with the songs. I think that's great. I never would have picked up on that largely just because I'm not familiar with most of the music used in movies like this. Um, I, I don't know 80s music. And I mean, anybody who, I mean, this, this podcast is called Pop Culturally Deprived. Of course, I'm not familiar with 80s music. <laughs> and so I would never have picked up on the, the meaning behind it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, but that's just, yeah, I, I've watched the movie way too much. And I just really start thinking about it. And, and, you know, I just like to see what they did there. And they they did quite a bit of thoughtful stuff in what seems to be an otherwise almost improvised movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's that shows how masterful it is. When you can be that intentional and also improv at the same time, I, I think it, it means you've got the right people working on your movie. Well yeah, and that's why it rewards multiple viewings. Not just because it's amusing, but you might find some some kind of Easter eggy kind of thing there that you can geek out about some more. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about things that we really enjoyed with the movie. So I think it's probably fair to say that for all of us, a lot of the movie was our favorite thing. Um, mm. But let's specifically call out some of the things that, that we really, really enjoyed in the movie. For me, you guys, Joan Cusack is a national treasure. <laughs> and I basically loved every time she was on the screen. But in the end, when she's liquidating the office and she's got the gas can and she's just throwing it on everything and she's got the cigarette in her mouth, I just, I adore her. That, she's such a minor character in the movie, but I think, honest to God, that was my favorite scene in the whole movie just because she 
is just doing she's getting things done and yeah. she's doing what she needs to do and she was amazing she goes through so much in just one shot of her basically she's so excited to be trashing it and putting all the gas out and then she gets a call from him that she's confirming and he says i'll get things sorted and then i'll come find you why (laughs) oh my god you're gonna kill me (laughs) but then she finds she's got what is clearly a lot of money that's quite a big brick and she's just over the moon with it oh yeah Yeah. oh i would be over the moon too (laughs) yeah i I just love her you know he hangs up and then she's looking at the money she just puts her hands up you know like a touchdown goes all right (laughs) yeah that That was fantastic yeah and uh god john cusack I love him. I do. And so after the convenience store explodes from the guy trying to kill him and, you know, he's rescued the teenager who was completely oblivious to everything. The next shot after the store has blown up, you know, they've kind of been thrown. They're laying on the grass. Martin just rolls over and puts his head in his hand and he's just sitting there like, eh, whatever. And it's just so casual, so nonchalant. And I feel like that is the scene that really defines Martin. That tells us who he is because everything about him just appears there, you know, with this, eh, I don't care, whatever. You know, he's he really has no passion for life or for what he does. He doesn't care that, you know, this building just exploded. And I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Too cool for school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that he went into the, into the Ultimart, you know, that used to be his home. And he calls Oatman and says, you can never go home again, Oatman, but I guess you can stop there. <laughs> and, and, and I love that bit uh, quite a bit. And then, um, you know, that, that literary illusion. And then I loved when he went to his former high school and he catches his English teacher outside, at Mrs., Mrs. K. And he asks her, are you still inflicting all that horrible Ethan Frome damage? <laughs> And That's I, a valid question. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic uh, because, yeah, we all remember these these books we were forced to read. Like, how did this become canon? And uh, I, I just love that he's, uh, you know, still remembers uh, that part of his education. He is quite, you know, well-spoken. Um, you know, obviously he, he was a smart guy and, and remains a smart guy. Mm. Uh, but I, I love the fact that he goes back to his English teacher and just frankly tells her, my God, that was terrible. You know, and, and, and she admits it and, and says, yeah, it's off the curriculum. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that comes at the same point where you have him seeing his mom and going to his uh, dad's grave. And it's just three interactions that tell you so much about his childhood and growing up before, obviously, the incident with Debbie and so on. It's, it's lovely development. Yeah, Absolutely. And it just, I mean, it might not have seemed like, you know, why would I care about this English teacher thing? It's just because I taught English for 17 years and I had to teach some books that I just absolutely loathed and didn't think I should be teaching. So I I completely sympathized with both sides of that particular conversation. Uh, Martin as a student, you know, because I remember, you know, reading books I never wanted to read, like Dostoevsky. Uh, followed by Chekhov, like my teachers had this obsession with Russian literature and wanted to depress the hell out of us, I guess. And then, you know, I, I also appreciated from Mrs. K's per- perspective that uh, she didn't particularly enjoy teaching it either. And mm. uh, now they're both happy that they, you know, that that is gone. If we're talking on the actors, Dan Aykroyd and Jeremy Piven are fairly 
used for, with a fairly light touch, but they both do the thing that Dan Aykroyd and Jeremy Piven both do in movies and TV. They just come in with just banter and wit and lots of quick dialogue and then go off and do something else. <laughs> Every scene they're in is just so much fun. Because they, they call each other out on... Well, they call Martin out on things, and, and he calls them out, and it's it's really high-class stuff that, that you don't get in a lot of other films. Everything with them. Yeah, I don't do these neural drugs. I ingest it on orders from my neurophysicist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ackroyd was great. He was fantastic. And this, is, this must be a fairly early role for Jeremy Piven. He's not quite hit his sort of entourage big personality moment yet but it still it still shines through every time he's on screen it, it definitely shined through i i remember when they got to the reunion and you know martin is talking to what's her name was her name jenny was that her name the, the one in the so, blue yeah. dress yeah you know and martin and her are just having a conversation and he is just constantly interjecting hi jenny hi jenny hey jenny it's paul jenny and she's just completely ignoring him. But then, you know, 10 or 15 minutes later, they're dancing together. Yeah. Him and I was just like, that, yeah. that is exactly him. You know, exactly. That's what you expect. You know, I feel like with the level of, I guess, improv in this movie, you really do get what you expect from hmm. each of these, from each of these actors playing these characters. Like, it's, it's just what you expect i know i said that i keep saying that because i I can't think of another way to say it um but i think it was perfect is really what i'm trying to say Mm. see we haven't really talked about debbie very much and i think mini driver was pretty awesome yeah you know she she was kind of deadpan sometimes she's very sarcastic but i think my very very favorite thing from her is at the end when she's locked in the bathroom with her dad because, you know, these assassins are trying to kill her dad. Martin comes to check on them and he opens the door and she just hands him this gun and says, make this gun work. And this is after she's already flipped out on him because she caught him killing this other dude. Mm. And like, she is not really processing what's happening. And she's just like, make this gun work. And I'm like, I love her. I love her. She's great. Yeah. I thought she was, yeah, entirely probably of all the roles I've seen many driver in. This is a, the most charming uh, mm. that she's been. She, I, I, I really liked her in this a lot. Um, and, and she's got, you know, her own walls and um, defenses up quite, a, you know, for most of the movie. And it slowly breaks down. And I, I liked seeing that as well. That um, she kind of thaws out or whatever as, as, as uh, she's becoming more and more hopeful, I guess, that Martin won't hurt her again. And and he seems to be you know genuinely uh, wanting to get back together. So I, yeah, I, I think she has a, a very nice character arc, and I and I like that she does slap the crap out of him at one point um, for for what he did, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and then what does what does she say? Like he comes in with flowers uh, to pick her up to go to the reunion, and and then she says, "I'll just go put these in some rubbing alcohol," you know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, she she wasn't uh, really you know I she kind of rebuffs a lot of his romantic advances and um, I I thought that was good. Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't the the stereotypical romance. I mean, and it wouldn't be. I mean, this movie is about murder and, and murder clubs <laughs> and stuff. But you know, they they still go through that relationship arc that you would expect them to go through, and they still end up together in the end, which. I absolutely loved because I didn't think they were, honestly. I wasn't sure how they were going to end it. I thought, 
you know, he had just screwed up too much and there was just no way this was going to happen. And so I appreciate that they still did that traditional romance arc, but they kind of subverted it a little bit too. And it just, it made it so fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. That It was not the typical on-screen romance at all. Both mm-hmm. of them were, were very sort of wounded and cautious and um, tiptoeing around each other, it's, you know, but but clearly there was also the attraction underneath it all. So, Yeah. Yeah, she's such a confident character. Again, someone who will call people out on things or make comments on stuff. And uh, so many of her lines are, are, are so direct. And even, like you say, with the gun. Oh, she's so on top of everything. But the bit where they go out to drink and they're joined by the drunken friend. So what do you do, Marv? And he starts spinning a yarn of, uh, I, I make southern fried chicken. And she <laughs> genuinely laughs at him. And you're like, yeah, I can see them working together. I can actually see why they're good. <laughs> yeah. He knows what he's doing there, you know? Mm. Yeah. They're they're both kind of, you know, playing with the drunken friend a little bit, and uh, yeah, so she's she's appreciating the the tag team I guess that's going on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking about Ghost Point Blank for quite a while now. Is there anything that we've missed, or anything else that you think we need to talk about in the movie? Normally, at this point, I start talking about sequels, follow-ups, films that are connected in some way. There is a film connected to this called War Inc., which is an informal sequel. Uh, John Cusack is a murdering assassin. Joan Cusack is his uh, assistant. Dan Ackwood plays a small part. It's terrible. It's really (laughs) bad. So no, we don't need to talk about any of that. It's got Hilary Duff in it. That was not a good Interesting. Film. Yeah, I watched it because okay. of the link to this, but I, I would not recommend it. We we have High Fidelity on the list, which is fundamentally different, but is also a similar character in some ways. Different occupation of, but... <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I, never, I, I haven't seen War, Inc., but I've heard the same thing, that it's a little bit disappointing and not... I, I'm wondering if it's... Is it a completely different crew? You know, different director, different... Well, obviously yeah. it's a different cast, so you know maybe that had quite a bit to do with it. Yeah, it was just very disappointing. Maybe yeah. they didn't okay. improvise as much. Who knows? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the magic of this movie came from from the improv that they mm. did. Yeah. Well, Kevin, at this point, we do usually like to ask our co-hosts if they have any additional recommendations for me to put on the list. Things. Um, that you would hope that I have seen because I probably haven't seen them because I've seen nothing at this point. Well, you know, since you like Cusack, you might want to go back and see one of his earlier films. Uh, go look at Better Off Dead um, because that has kind of a, a little bit of a cult following too just for the crazy one-liners here and there. Um, just off-the-wall characters like you can't believe. It, it's an absurdist sort of comedy for sure. But then they do these – you know, bizarre animation sequences as well. So, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would recommend putting that one on there uh, because that one winds up being a movie that uh, we quote quite a bit. I think I've made reference to it in a couple of my books, especially the, the there's a character named Booger. So, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, he, he he's classic. So, <laughs> check that one out. It is definitely on the list. I, I don't know when we'll get to it, but it is on the list. And several people have mentioned it, especially since we started talking about Ghost Point Blank, too. Because I think, apparently, it's a classic John Cusack movie, and I had no idea. 
<laughs> I'm still laughing about some of the things that – you know the, the – who's the – David Ogden Steers is in it. And it's the only thing I've ever seen him in besides MASH. He's uh, – you know, he played Winchester. Hmm. Right? So to see him as the father in, in this uh, movie uh, really kind of cracked me up as well. All right. So we want to talk a bit about some of the listener feedback we've had on previous episodes. Uh, Sam at Darkness Random commented about the Dark Knight, how originally Two-Face had more realistic burns, but it was too disturbing for test audiences. Given how realistic the open face he had in the end was, uh, it must have been quite graphic, I would imagine. Yeah, um, and that was in response to my frustration that the makeup was the makeup was really good but the the CGI that went along with it was not as good because he could mm. still talk and and all of that stuff so i actually appreciate sam letting us know why like that was an, an intentional choice that i didn't get but that makes sense if yeah. if the makeup was too realistic that freaked people out uh, another comment we got about the dark knight was from iu girl jen uh, she I think enjoyed me commenting that Batman has a pistony thing. <laughs> and that's the technical term for another gadget that he uses to do a thing to get out of a situation. <laughs> <laughs> Could you be any more vague there? <laughs> it's a pistony thing. I am doing critical analysis and stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we also got an email from our friend Anya, a.k.a. Strangely Literal. She uh, wrote to us about the movie Jaws, and she said that it was a great episode on Jaws. However, I have to point out that while it's a really fun fictional movie, unfortunately, it's had some unintended consequences for sharks in real life. Many conservationists argue that Jaws made people more afraid of them than they should be, leading to higher levels of shark hunting. In fact, Jaws author Peter Benchley spent the second half of his career promoting shark conservation. Sharks are important predators for ocean ecosystems, and thankfully their populations are finally starting to rebound. This is partly due to changing attitudes about the risk of shark attacks. Keep up the good work. And, you know, thank you for for reaching out and telling us that, uh, Anya, because I didn't even think about the kind of consequences that a movie like that could have on an ecosystem. I think that that's really interesting, and I'm glad that uh, maybe folks were able to work to counteract that a little bit. Because of Jaws, we get Shark Week to undo the damage. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, if you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter on our website, and every week you'll get a newsletter from us telling us what we're going to be doing that week and letting you know what's coming up so you can watch along with us. And you can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vos. And I am also on Twitter at Kevin Hearn. And you have a great website at kevinhearn.com. I'm also on uh, I'm also on Instagram at, at Kevin underscore Hearn, and uh, if you'd like to use Facebook, I am there as well. Uh, Facebook.com slash author Kevin. Please also remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It's the number one best way to help people discover the show. And uh, as ever, if you do review us, let us know. We always like to read them, and we like to be able to say thank you to. And if you really like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We now do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. 
We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll be joined by the amazing Lonnie Diane Rich to talk about when Harry met Sally. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And if I show up at your door, chances are you did something to bring me there. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at eloquentgushing.